This morning we're going to read from Hebrews 10:19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. We are going to conclude our series this Sunday, uh, today, on connectivity and community in Christianity. Jesus said to his disciples uh, the night before he was executed on a Roman cross that they were like fruitful branches that flourish as they are connected to a vine and that he was that vine. The Apostle Paul compared the Christian community uh, to a human body that, that we are like organs and systems that work together mutually for the support of a healthy, functioning body. The Apostle Peter said that Christians are like a spiritual house of interlocking stones that support one another and are founded, are established on one cornerstone, one foundation stone, who is Jesus. Now, despite these beautiful metaphors and analogies of what Christian community is that we see in the New Testament, despite all the beautiful imagery, it's hard for Christians to stay together. Have you noticed? If you've been a Christian for a little while, it's hard for Christians to stay together. It is hard sometimes to believe that you're a part of this beautiful building, that, that you're a branch in that vine, that you're an essential organ in that body. Sometimes it's hard to believe that. Sometimes you don't even want to believe that, right? A recent study came out by the Pew Research Center regarding religion in America. Pew Research claims, this, is, this was as, as recent as 2014, that 36% of Americans uh, attend weekly religious services across all religions, not just Christianity. Uh, across all types of religions and faith, 36% of Americans claim that they are involved at least once a week in, in, a, in an organized uh, religious gathering. 36% of Americans. Maryland, it was a little lower. 31% of Marylanders are involved at least once a week in a religious organization, particularly in, in like a worship service. Now, the Barna Research Group has similar statistics, but they also add, uh, add different insights into the situation. According to the Barna Group, 73% of Americans identify as Christian. 70, 73% of America identify as Christian. But Barna says it's a complicated situation. 
Because if because Barna goes further to to identify what they mean by a practicing Christian. So according to the Barna group, a practicing Christian is someone who attends a religious service at least once a month. So Barna is setting the bar as low, very, very low. Barna says, if you attend a religious worship service at least once a month, and if you say that your faith is a very important part of your life, uh, then Barna would categorize you as a practicing Christian. And Barna says only 31% of America's population is a practicing Christian. So 73% of Americans say they are Christians. 31%, at least according to Barna, are actively engaged in a community of faith. Now, all the news is not discouraging. First of all, it's a very com- if you read about it, it's a very complex issue. A lot, a lot of factors uh, go into it. Uh, and not all the news is discouraging. There are some positive trends, especially amongst evangelical Americans who at least gather uh, uh, for worship at a rate of 58% on a weekly basis. But honestly, comparatively, let's compare church life and religion uh, with other avenues of life. Uh, Think of your job, uh, think of a sports team, or even think of a musical ensemble. Uh, What musical ensemble can make music? What athletic team can win? What office can achieve productivity with only one-third of its members present most of the time? It can't. Uh, But according to statistics and trends, it appears that Western Christians seem to think that the church can function as it's meant to be with only one-third of its adherents being actively involved on a regular basis. But as you read the Bible, you discover something amazing. And I'm not using the word amazing lightly. What I'm about to say, I think, is truly amazing because it's what the Bible teaches, that your faith in Jesus will nurture a faith in his people. And I'm not just being poetic. I mean that quite literally. Your faith in Jesus, if you follow Jesus and you're committed to him, it will nurture a faith in the people that Jesus says belong to him. And what I want to talk to you today about is the reality of Christian community and the need for Christian community and the way to Christian community. The reality of Christian community, the need for it, and the way to it. Now, the reality of community in Christianity was established by Jesus. Before any of us asked for it, Jesus made it so. It was by his design, it was by his effort, by even his sweat and his blood. The letter of Hebrews, we don't know really who wrote it, but it seems to clearly have been written to an audience of Jewish Christians. And really the point of the letter of Hebrews is to say that Jesus of Nazareth had fulfilled the Old Testament law, that Jesus had fulfilled the sacrificial system, that Jesus had fulfilled everything the ancient temple was all about. 
and that Jesus as a great high priest, like the high priest of high priests, gives us access to God. And actually, in our passage today, particularly in verses 19 through 21, we get a great little summary of Hebrews chapter 1 through 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, I'll just stop quoting the passage right there because you have a great summary of the entire letter right there. The word since is important. It comes up twice. And the word therefore is important. And it goes something like this. Here's a summary. Since Jesus has given us access to God, therefore, there are three things we need to do. Since Jesus has opened access once for all and forever, access to our creator, therefore, there are three important things that we need to pursue according to Hebrews. And here's what they are. Here's the first exhortation, the first command, the first thing uh, that we're told to do. And you see it in verse 22. Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Very simply, Christian faith, because you hear the word faith used all the time in our culture, even in religion. But Christian faith, according to the Bible, is this. Faith is a confidence that your status has changed. Faith is confidence that you are now a child of God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your big brother. That your status has changed from God's enemy to God's friend and particularly God's new adopted child. You belong to the family. He's now your heavenly father and he loves you and nothing you say or do can change that. You're in the family forever and as we sang before, you have a seat at the table. Faith is believing and trusting that your status has changed because of Jesus. The second thing we are told to do, you see in verse 23, therefore, let us hold fast. Holding fast means not letting something get away from you. That's the idea of the original word. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Christian hope is not letting go of your father's promises. Since God is your father now, since he loves you like he loves his son Jesus and nothing can change that now trust what he says believe what he says and what he's promised to you don't let those promises slip away from you practically slip out of your life practically slip out of your thinking and away from your heart and what you hold most dear don't let your father's promises slip away from you because he is faithful and he will cause them to come true in the end. So faith in your new status, hope in the promises your father shares with you in his word. And finally, the third thing we are commanded to do, you see it in verse 24, therefore, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And in the original Greek, uh, the language is more forceful. 
It goes something like this. And let us consider one another. Let us consider one another for encouragement to love and good works. So you see something, I think, that is very interesting here. Faith and hope are to be nurtured in community. Faith and hope are not simply individualistic commodities, but they are to be held on to and expressed and enjoyed in community. Faith in God, hope in God's promises, and communing with one another characterize a community of fellowship characterized by love and service. One scholar read this passage and was reminded that it looks an awful lot like another verse in the Bible. When the Apostle Paul was talking about love in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, he concluded his discussion about love by saying, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul was saying in that passage, you can have a really impressive uh, resume on your Christianity dossier. But if love's not a part of it, it's all a bunch of hooey. It's all a waste without love. And in a similar way, Hebrews is telling us, you have faith, good. You have hope, good. But these things must be shared. They must be expressed and lived out in community. So as you read the Bible, and hey, if you're reading the Bible with your eyes open, you can't miss this. You can't miss that community is a vital dimension of Christian faith. As we mentioned last week, we quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his, in his classic work, his classic little book, Life Together. He wrote, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in which we may participate. So in one sense, exercising our faith and holding on to our hope as Christians uh, is, is expressed by just showing up in one another's lives and just showing up in public worship and, and just showing up in, in the ministry, in the service of the Christian community and saying, I'm here and as an act of faith, I'm just going to give myself. I'm going to give myself to you. So despite trends and statistics, Jesus and his apostles in the New Testament didn't consider community an option. If you're reading the Bible with your eyes open, community is not optional. The need for community is undeniable. It's universal. The author goes on in verse 25 to warn us. He says, essentially, hold on, let me get it. There it is. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. See, so even 2,000 years ago, this, this dynamic that Barna and Pew are talking about, just, don't just blame it on America, uh, the dynamic existed 2,000 years ago. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now we know that early Christians gathered, 
regularly. We know they gathered weekly. We know they even gathered daily in their homes and in public. You can see that as early as Acts chapter 2. Check it out. And you can see hints of it all over the New Testament letters and in early church history. And actually, when, when the writer says, don't neglect to meet together, the word for neglect, is act, it actually meant, because neglect seems kind of passive, but the original word had more of an active connotation. It meant to forsake. It meant to abandon something. Or to abandon someone. Not just neglect, but abandonment. Forsaking. It's as if God is saying in verse 25 to us, don't forsake your brothers and sisters. Always remember the family. Never give up on the family. But rather, make it your habit to encourage one another. Don't forsake, don't abandon, but encourage. Becky and I, for about a six-year period of our lives in the last decade, and, and when we were serving at our, our previous church, we just went through one crisis and tragedy and challenge after another. Uh, people in our families dying, uh, uh, getting sick. I got sick. Uh, organizational, institutional conflict and, and problems uh, where I worked. It just felt like for about six years or so, it was one crazy thing after another, like, like we almost couldn't catch our breath. And I shall tell you, when, when, the director of our, when the director of Chesapeake Presbytery's church planting wing said to me, oh, so you want to plant a church? Uh, he said, given everything you and Becky have been through, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> just to give you a little bit of perspective. And I, you know, I realized that just one of those crises we went through, just one, could have dismantled our family could have could have damaged our marriage irreparably. Uh, could have could could have destroyed our faith. Uh, could have compromised our sanity. Just one of those things uh, that we went through. But each time, our church and beyond our church, our extended faith community. Because you know, if you're a Christian, you know Christians from other places and in other ministries and in in other communities or churches. Our extended faith community encouraged us. We weren't forsaken. We weren't abandoned. We didn't abandon them either in our discouragement, in our struggle, but we encouraged one another. And sometimes we were encouraged by profound spiritual advice. And sometimes it was very simple, like somebody baked us a quiche. And it was usually the simple things that meant more I once had a good friend who said, I know you're going through radiation. I know you're depressed. I know you don't want to talk to me or see me, but I brought you a milkshake. See you later. That meant a lot. People might think that they're managing on their own. You know, sometimes you may think, well, I, I really don't need the church. At least I, I can be connected to the church and just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm leasing with an option to buy kind of a mentality. I'll just hold the church and God's people at arm's length. I'll kind of be there. I'll kind of be engaged with the faith community, but, but not really because I'm doing okay. I'm doing fine. And you might think that, or others you know might think that. Uh, but here's the thing. A woman named Emma Green, she writes for The Atlantic. 
she's very good. She writes on religion. And it, just this past August, she put out an article. And I'll just put, it, I'll put the reference up there for you. Emma Green said just this summer, she, she picked up on another, another survey done, put out this past August, actually August 2016, from the Pew Research Center. And she, she basically dilutes it for you. She, she boils it all down and gives you a simple article to read on the data. This is one interesting point that she made. Out of all Americans who claim they don't really go to church anymore, one-fifth of them say that they used to. And out of that one-fifth of Americans who no longer go to church, uh, other than what you expect, they gave up on faith. They just don't believe in Christ anymore. She doesn't focus on that because it's not all about that. Uh, Some people say the reason they don't go to church anymore is just practical things. Their schedules are so full. They're young parents. They've got a lot of little kids, and it's just hard to get to church. Some people cite their work schedule. It's very difficult to get to church. Some people just say it's not a priority to them anymore. There's some ambiguous, just it's not important to me. It was when I was growing up, or it was to my parents, or it was when I was younger. It's not anymore. Some say they have less faith in organized religion uh, or in institutions at all. They just have a hard time trusting in organized religion. Now, I want to say to you, I think all of those are valid concerns. I think we need to hear that. Not saying any of them are good excuses for giving up on the church, but they are all valid concerns. But you know, All it takes is one life crisis. All it takes is one job loss. All it takes is one affair or one breakup or one bout with depression or one bout with a life-threatening disease. All it takes is one mistake, one tragedy, one accident, one conflict to derail your faith. The New Testament describes Satan, our spiritual adversary, as a lion. And what do we know about predators? Predators go after the lone sheep. Predators go after the one who breaks away from the herd and has no protection, and has no context by which to take care of itself. That's how predators operate. And the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 says... In the context of community, of submitting to one another, uh, he says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking people to devour. Resist him. And what Hebrews is saying is we resist him by staying together, by not giving up on one another. So if you think, and, and I, I don't mean this personally about any of you, I'm just speaking out loud, okay? It's something for all of us to consider. If, if you think your Christianity is healthy on a diet of holiday worship services or, or sermon podcasts okay, without any regular, consistent interaction with the community of faith, worshiping together, serving together, holding on to that hope that we profess together, 
I would kindly ask you to think again. We all need the community that Christ has established for us. He laid that foundation down for a purpose, and we all need it. This whole idea of stirring one another up toward love and good deeds, it it requires a regular life-on-life dynamic. And that's why we have weekly worship services. That's why we have, this is all set up for you every week. It's why we have communities. It's why we have service opportunities here uh, and and outside of our church uh, into the community and into the world. Because this idea of stirring up one another toward love and good works, is it, it is a life-on-life endeavor. As the Apostle Paul said to his friends, the church, Thessalonica, uh, speaking of the time that he and his associates had planted the church there, he said, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also, also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And in another translation, it says, not only did we share the gospel with you, we shared our very lives with you. What gives us the right to forsake the fellowship for which Jesus bled and died? Now, that's not directed at any one of you individually, but it is something for all of us to consider. And and think about it personally, because I know sometimes we go, oh, I wish so-and-so were here, because they really need to hear this today. Well, just let's, let's, let's apply it to ourselves. What gives us the right, if you are a Christian, what gives us the right to forsake the fellowship for which Christ bled and died? Now, you may have very good reasons for feeling disenfranchised about the church or about Christianity or about Christians. You may have excellent reasons for feeling uh, let down for feeling skeptical and not ready to trust people again, not ready to trust the church, not ready to trust Christians. I respect that. The church is often a mess. Our leaders fail. Conflicts flare up. And a lot of what we do is very mundane. And, you know, it's just the church isn't sexy. It's not. And, and, you know, when you're hanging out with people like us, uh, the dopamine isn't going back and forth in your brain as often as other activities. There's just something very commonplace and mundane about the community of faith. But at the end of verse 25, we see these words that we are to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. The day is a big deal. We could have a whole sermon series on the day. We're not going to, but the day is about when Jesus comes back. When Jesus, once and for all, restores all of creation, restores humanity, restores you. You see, what we do now means something because he's coming back. Not just because he was here and told us, now do this. What we do now means something because he's returning Because he loves his church. He calls the church his bride. He's married to the church. Not just to you, not just to me. He's married to us. And he's coming back to get us. 
He loves his church so much. You know the Apostles' Creed, right? We, we, we recite the Apostles' Creed once a month. We're not going to recite it right now, but, but most of you remember how it goes. The whole first section of the Apostles' Creed begins with these words, I believe in God the Father. And then the second session, second section begins with these words, I believe in Jesus Christ. And the third section begins with the words, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the Holy Universal Church. I believe in the church and in the communion of saints. You see, now, the Apostles' Creed goes back to the 8th century and parts of it go back to the 2nd century. This is old stuff. It is almost as old as the New Testament. And so what we see here is that historical biblical Christianity has always believed that it takes just as much faith to believe in the church as it does to believe in God. But God is holy and we're a mess. John Calvin believed it was pride. When he commentated on Hebrews chapter 10, he believed it was pride, that that was the reason why people don't get together and don't stay together. Not just because you think you're better than everybody else, but even because you feel hurt. It's still pride because you're not willing to trust God with the people that he's put in your life. C.S. Lewis confirmed that it was pride in his own experience. C.S. Lewis became a Christian as an adult, as a, as a brilliant man, as an author, as a professor. Said this later in his life, when I first became a Christian, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology and I wouldn't go to the churches. Lewis went on to say, I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth rate poems set to sixth rate music. Maybe it's not music for you. Maybe it's maybe it's the way people talk. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's the flavor of our style. Maybe it's how people dress. Maybe it's how they talk and what they look like and how they think and how they vote. Uh, Whatever it may be, it's a preference, like Lewis's issue with the hymns. Lewis went on to say, but as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Friends, the way to embrace Christ's community is to embrace his love for his community. That is, I am asking you to start very simply. If this is a struggle for you, I'm glad you're here. And I hope you come back. And I hope you stick not only with Jesus, but with his people. But here's the first step. You just say, Jesus, give me the love you have for your church. I don't love your church. Give me your love for your church. You just start there. You love your country? Good. You love your work? You love your hobbies? Good. You love your biological family and your best friends and your hobbies? Good. Do you love the church? Jesus does. 
And when he hung on a cross, he spoke the words in Aramaic. He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which was Aramaic. But when you read Mark's gospel, it's, it's in ancient Greek. And the Greek word for forsaken is the same word for neglect. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. You see the significance of this. Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was abandoned. He was neglected so that you and I would never have to be. He gave up his unity with the Father so that we could have unity with the Father. And when we receive that, when we receive the love of Christ, who was abandoned and forsaken and neglected for us, when we receive that love, it liberates you. It liberates you from this impulse to forsake one another. Because we have an itch to not commit. We have an itch to give up, especially when people let us down, especially when institutions let us down. But the love of Christ liberates us from our compulsion to keep giving up. You know, when you really love a person, don't you, for their sake, begin to accept the people that belong with them? Maybe your best friend. I know for me, when I married Becky, I had to accept her people. For her sake, I had to first put up with her friends put up with her family for her sake, because I loved her. You don't love a person in any context. You have to, you have to accept their people, right? I married her, but I got her family and friends as a result. But what eventually begins to happen is you begin, as you embrace other people, you begin to appreciate them, not just for the sake of the person you love, but for their own sake, you begin to appreciate them and you begin to embrace them. And that's what it is with Christianity. Jesus gets a hold of you. He captures you with his love and forgiveness and wisdom and light. And he he commits himself to you. And when you get Jesus, you get me. I'm sorry. You got me. And I got you. I get you. That's how it works. Jesus says, you love me. You want to be with me. These are my people. And I've called you to them also. So your faith in Jesus quite literally will nurture a faith in Jesus's people. If you do not have the latter, there is something wrong with the former. But Jesus committed himself to you. Now in faith, you commit yourself. You commit yourself to his people. And you will. You will eventually learn to love us. And we, you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for our Savior Jesus, who was forsaken so that we would not be. And in his name, may we not only embrace him, but may we embrace one another for his sake. Amen.